Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal too? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Today, Farah, we're going to talk about a situation that affects about one-fourth of all Americans at some time in their lives. And I was surprised to see that figure. It is rather startling to read that the Centers for Disease Control says about 26% of all American residents live with a disability. And that means many of the people who listen to these programs deal with that issue every day of their lives. That brings us to introduce our guest today, Jason Krebs, who founded and is the managing member of his law firm in Springfield. Krebs Law LLC focuses on workers' compensation, social security disability, and personal injury cases in Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Welcome to the program, Jason. Thank you. Good to be here. Disability is such a broad category. I've often associated it with wheelchairs and crutches and white canes, but we're seeing how broad the field can be with the word being expanded to cover even some people now who are having to deal with COVID, especially long-term COVID and other definitions of disabled. Can you give us a brief overview of this rather broad topic before we dive right into some of the specifics, Jason? Sure. The disability program, there are several aspects of the disability program. The two main ones that most folks are dealing with are the uh, Social Security Disability Insurance Program, and then the other one would be Supplemental Security Income. And the first program, the, the Disability Insurance Program, is based upon what you're you know, when you pay FICA taxes or your, your payroll taxes or self-employment taxes, it, it is a disability insurance program, and that's how you pay your premiums. Uh, the supplemental security income side of things is for people that, that may not have paid in for whatever reason or have, have waited too long to file and have lost some of their credits to file for disability. But for most folks, it, it's the idea that you're going to have to be out of work for a year or more with a major health condition. Where did this concept of disability law begin? How long ago did we start actually dealing with people with disabilities from the legal standpoint? Well, the, the Social Security Administration has been around you know, since FDR era. And then in the 50s and 60s, there were some, some changes made within the, the disability side of things. And then it's really become much more prevalent in probably the last 40, 45 years where things have really gotten to to be more what we would consider the, the program now that we have. There's always improvements and, and those kind of things are, are things that they're trying to improve and, and the changes are constant, but it's it's been about that long since we've had the, the system that we know. We talked initially in the introduction about the number of people in America living with a disability. How does the Social Security Administration define disability? Is it is it a really broad term or is it very narrow and specific? There are you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of ailments that a person might have that would preclude work. And that's really what it comes down to is how does whatever that you have going on with your physical or mental health that's going to affect your ability to do what we call substantial gainful activity under the Social Security regs. Now, that's a fancy term for being able to work. Uh, substantial gainful activity is is right now defined as $1,310 a month gross income. If you're, if you're over that amount, they really don't even look at your, your health records. That does go up at the, the first of the year to, uh, to 20, uh, 2022 to $1,350. So everybody's going to have a different, you know, just because somebody might have a, a diabetes, that's only one aspect of it. 
it's, you know, how does the diabetes affect their ability to show up to work every day, eight hours a day, five days a week without needing significant accommodations? The Social Security Administration doesn't really look at the accommodation side of things like, like we would with the Americans with Disabilities Act. We look at could a person do this job or a job without needing some accommodation. And it's really that everyday aspect of work that precludes most people from the workforce. There's a lot of folks on disability that could work three or four days a week, maybe even five, but we just don't know which three or four that they're going to work or they, they can't you know string two weeks in a row together successfully for an employer to be able to schedule, for instance. When we spoke with uh, on another episode with a lawyer about veterans benefits, in the history of that, he explained that it wasn't until just, you know, the last few decades or so that lawyers have become more involved in that process. Um, have lawyers been involved since really these disability, uh, Social Security disability program came into effect? Or was it something that was initially intended that individuals could apply for on their own and has just become so complicated that lawyers are really the best advocates? Well, it's always, there have always been lawyers involved in it. The supplemental security income side of things, kind of like the VA used to have a pretty uh, onerous limit on uh, the amount that an attorney could, could make. Supplemental security income, SSI, had that for, for many number of years. They made it very difficult for an attorney to get paid, with the, the end result being most attorneys that, that handled disability did not want to get involved in that. But there's always been uh, attorneys involved. Most folks, especially folks over 50, it, it, it certainly uh, is it to their benefit to contact an attorney before they, they start the process because it, it can be pretty pretty onerous. What does it take to apply for these disability benefits? Do you have to lose your job? Do you have to have be forced to resign from your job before you can apply? How do you go about getting in the pipeline? You have to apply with the Social Security Administration. And you have to be out of work or be below that current SGA or significant gainful activity amount, which right now is, is $1,310 a month. That's to even get it really started. And then once, once that happens, now the, I should point out, the closer you are to that SGA amount, the more difficult it is going to be for you to be successful. But, but that's the first thing. You, you generally have to be out of work or, or just about out of work to really get started. Then, then you file a form. Do you have to have any sustaining documents to go with that to show you are disabled or somebody thinks you're disabled? Right. So what happens is, so you, there's a couple of ways. Um, you can get on SSA GOV slash disability and, and do an online form. Our Social Security Administration has a toll-free number. Well, I believe it's my understanding that they'll call you back. You, you schedule an appointment and they'll call you back and then you, you'll answer some questions. The questions are generally very straightforward, kind of, you know, name, rank and serial number, uh, places you've worked, that kind of thing. But the real key that they're looking for here, Bob, is they're looking for where you've gone to get medical care and, and where is the proof? Because ultimately, the person claiming disability has the burden of proving that they are disabled. And they're not just going to take your word for it. They want to see some medical evidence. And medical evidence varies, obviously. An MRI showing severe back problems 
is kind of the gold standard or a blood test or a CT scan where it's not just somebody coming in and claiming that they're depressed or, or those type of things where they're subjective versus objective medical evidence. Do you have to waive confidentiality of your medical records to, uh, to get this information to social security? They will, they will require you to sign a HIPAA release. Yes. Once you apply at that point, do you recommend that people contact a lawyer at that initial process or is that something that individuals should just try to do on their own? There's no easy answer to that. We're used to the, it depends. (laughs) But it is, it it, it does depend. And what it depends on, there's a very significant change in the law when somebody reaches their 50th birthday or close to it. It becomes easier, quote unquote, for someone to qualify for disability. And the reason that it becomes a little bit easier for folks is before somebody that's 40, 49, even 45 or younger, Folks, all jobs are on the table. You have to prove that there is not a single job out of all 12,760 some odd jobs that they say exist in the national economy, different types of work. You have to get down to zero if you're under the age of 50. When somebody reaches 50, that narrows and we start looking at what has this person done for the last 15 years? And that's what we call your relevant work history. And that's really all Social Security cares about is what you've done for the last 15 years before you claim you became disabled. And that that applies to any age. Can you go back to any of that type of work or something really close? Or do you have a skill set that would help you adjust to something less physically or mentally demanding? Is there kind of an understanding that at the age of 50, you somehow become more decrepit than when you're 49? Well, they, they've drawn a line in the sand somewhere where they've decided that it's, it's harder for an old dog to learn new tricks. <laughs> and that 50 is where it is right now. Uh, now, it, it narrows even more at 55, and it narrows even more at 60. I guess that gets to another question I'd written down here to ask you about, because if, you, if you're a bricklayer, for example, and you're 52, and you apply for disability because your, your back has gone bad and you can't lay bricks anymore, do you then have to also prove that you can't make the same kind of living doing something else, uh, whether it's uh, selling shoes in a shoe store or something like that? Well, that's the bricklayer is, is the, interestingly enough, is the example that I use a lot when I'm talking to folks because bricklaying is a highly skilled occupation. Plumber, pipe fitter, electrician, all these things are very highly skilled. No different than being a a doctor or a lawyer or, or whatever. It's just you, you acquire your skill set differently, right? You, you acquire it on the job or, you know, through the union or, or however. But they recognize that that bricklayer is not going to transition very well when he's 52 to an office job. Because first of all, like it or not, you know, who's going to hire him? And that's really kind of an unspoken thing that they look at. But they recognize that nobody's really going to train this, want to train this person. And they recognize that that bricklaying skill set does not transfer to that office job or that sales job. So it's not so much the proof of, of loss of income, but it's more they recognize that if, if this person is going to be limited to sit down work, that nobody's really going to hire them to do sit down work at 52. How does the disability, so if that bricklayer qualified 
and was approved. Can they expect a similar replacement of income from disability or is it capped at different levels based on how many credits or you've paid in to this insurance program? Well, it, it is capped. There are caps. Uh, it wouldn't matter if you were uh, you're making a million dollars a year. There are still caps. Around $2,600 a month right now would be your benefit amount. Uh, I believe that's uh, going up a little bit the first of the year. But the main thing, and unfortunately, it's a conversation that we have to have far too often with folks that, that call our office is a big component of it is based upon what you've paid in. And if you haven't paid in your taxes or you worked under the table or you weren't working, that is going to affect, first and foremost, it affects your ability to even qualify under the program if you haven't paid in or if you haven't paid in enough to have the credits. But it will certainly affect if there was a long term or long sustained period of not paying your taxes, it, it could affect your benefit amount. And you can see your benefit amount uh, by getting on, opening an account on, uh, I believe it's myssa.gov. You can get on there and, and open an account and see not only your retirement amount, but your um, your disability amount. Are these benefits, this $2,600 a month, do you have to pay income tax on that? Yes. If you're over a certain level, you know, combined with your spouse, that, that you certainly could have to, yes. Yeah. If you qualify, are you eligible to continue to work if you can still work, even if it's just, you know, a few hours a month? Yes, you can. Uh, you have to b- stay below whatever the current SGA amount is, significant gainful activity, which, like I said, is in 2022 is going to be $1,350. But I can tell you, if you're close to that, number one, they're going to look at you closely. If you go over that amount, you would lose your benefits for that month. If you continue to go over that amount, they're going to take them away permanently from you. And then the other thing that they're going to look at is what are you doing? I mean, if you're, if you're saying you're, if you were a 40 year old, use that bricklayer and they've, they've decided to pay you and you're out doing a fairly physical job part time, you've kind of opened the door for them to say, well, we think he can do something a lot easier. Maybe be a cashier, maybe be, maybe do that sit down job that he has to prove He's already proved that he can't do, but if he's out doing it or if he's out doing some light, lighter work, you know, standing jobs, uh, lifting 20, 25 pound type work, you, you've opened the door to some questions. So the other day I was drove through the McDonald's drive through in Jefferson City and I saw signs that say they're hiring people. So could the, this bricklayer then could go to work? At, at McDonald's and serve people their hamburgers and whatever it is and still be able to draw some salary from that and collect his maximum benefits. Correct. Your last answer touched on um, another question I had was, can your disability benefits be amended or stopped? And it sounds like, yes, they can. The government can give and take it away. <laughs> they absolutely can. Most folks, especially younger folks, and, and by younger under the Social Security is under 50. If you do qualify and are successful and you're under 50, you can almost guarantee that they are going to review you every two to three years for sure. Now that, that just may mean they're going to send you a, a HIPAA form and have you get, you know, signed and they're going to get your medical records and make sure that you're, you know, 
being consistent with somebody that that appears to be disabled. You know, if you if you win your benefits and never go to the doctor again, that's not very consistent. But that's certainly something that they're going to look at. If you're 60, they're probably not going to look at you again. But most folks are getting reviewed. And, and a lot of times when we have a hearing and we're successful, the judge will put in his or her order uh, right above where he signs his or her name to be reviewed in a year, 18 months, 24 months. And so, you know, they're supposed to follow that, but it doesn't necessarily have to say that. The Social Security Administration does that quite frequently on their own. It takes it takes a year before you can file, if I'm correct on that. And then how long? No, are... no, let me let me okay. jump in there. Yeah, yeah. You, that's a very common misconception. Okay. Um, you're you have to be out of work for a year okay. or you are expected to be out of work for a year. So you could quit work today if you had some terrible condition or wreck, and I hope that never happens to anybody, but it happens. You know, there, there's a date certain, right? You quit work tomorrow, and then, you know, they could approve you if they think, well, this, this person's not going to be able to go back to work ever or for more than a year. So that's, that's one thing. Now, the, the downside is if you quit work today and they approve you tomorrow, which would never happen that fast, and you're not going to get paid Social Security does not pay anybody for their disability for five months, the first five months of their disability. Why is that? That is a great question. That is a question for when you have a, a U.S. senator or U.S. representative on to have that question. I think in all seriousness, Bob, I think it's as much as anything to keep people from filing where they're, well, I'm going out for heart surgery. I'm going to be out for a month or two. And I, th- I think it's just to deter people from filing is the the short answer. It seems like it could be a really tough window for someone who, you know, absolutely has that disability and is trying to fill that gap. Absolutely. It is heartbreaking. The, the delay, though, the other thing that a lot of folks don't realize, maybe even worse, is if you are successful with a social security disability income claim, not the SSI side, with the, the straight disability, you're entitled to Medicare, so you're entitled to health insurance. Now, they do charge you a little premium for that, but it is a two-year plus that five-month, so 29-month wait to be eligible for Medicare. So in the meantime, you may qualify for Missouri Health Net or, or Medicaid, and Medicaid is what somebody in Missouri that were successful on the SSI side of things would be qualified for. So again, where they've come up with that waiting period I don't know. It's, it's terrible and it's, it's very cruel. When I was a reporter covering the legislature, I often heard people refer to certain bills as being a lawyer's full employment act. <laughs> and it sounds to me like this system is kind of kind of in that in that area. I know that from what we've been talking about the last few minutes here, I don't think I'd want to wade into these weeds without a lawyer by my side to do all of this stuff or, or, or help me get through it. Does this just point to the point that somewhere fairly early on, somebody needs to have some legal help or somebody whispering in his ear about what the law is? Yeah, most folks, it, it certainly is, is beneficial to them to get somebody involved sooner than later, especially those folks over 50, because while the application itself is, is pretty straightforward, kind of yes, no answers, where'd you go to school, where you work, where'd you go to the doctor, once you file, then they send you a bunch of papers in the mail that are your work history, 
where you start talking about what type of work you've done in the last 15 years. And then they send you what they call your function report. It's kind of the day in the life kind of thing. And that's where having a lawyer to review those. And because most, most people really make some huge mistakes in that area. I know that on your website, you have some eBooks that are free to help residents better understand the system. It sounds like the things that you were just describing, all of the nuances that probably cannot be found anywhere without, you know, someone who's familiar with the system, such as yourself and other lawyers who practice in this area. Is that why you offer that, you know, just free to those who are seeking to apply? I do. We had those books for several years that I wrote, and it really does help a lot of folks because there are a lot of nuances to the application process. It's certainly for folks over 50, you know, if you're under 50, you got to show that there's not a single job that you can do. But folks over 50, that's where they can talk themselves into maybe some jobs that they really didn't have. And that's where having a lawyer involved. And that's where the books were, you know, we're trying to educate people and let them know because it doesn't help anybody to give them false hope. I hate to say it, that, they're, that they've got a valid claim when they really don't as well. And trying to educate folks what they need to be able to prove and that it is their responsibility to prove it is why we did that. Do you very often when you deal with your clients like this bricklayer, do you find your role sometimes is to help them find other things they can do? Is that part of the job that you have when you're working with them is say, okay, you can't brick, lay bricks anymore, but here's this list of jobs and what are some things you can do? We don't necessarily get into the vocational placement side of things, but we do have to have some folks that, you know, uh, have some conversation with some folks that the, the biggest issue that we come across, Bob, is a guy, you know, a 40-year-old bricklayer that maybe he can't be a bricklayer anymore, but he can go do other things. And having that conversation that, you know, you're, you're really not going to be able to prove that you can't do any type of work with what you have going on. There's no question you can't be a bricklayer. You know, these some of these higher paying jobs, uh, they're hard to replace. And and so that's more than trying to find them another job. It's, it's kind of having some conversations of, that aren't real comfortable. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people get mad at what's you know, at us. I know, I mean, I know a lot of people get mad at us, but that's some of the conversations that we have to have. Once you get on the disability list and once you start getting these payments, they review you every few years, but otherwise would these payments last well beyond what would be normal retirement age? No, once you would hit your full retirement age, whatever that would be based upon your age, you would roll over into the retirement amount. So your, your payment might change. Now, something that's important from that aspect is you know, somebody, let's say uh, they're 61, 62 years old, and they become disabled. Obviously, you're, you're close there. I mean, at 62, you can draw early retirement, but there's a huge lifetime penalty, 25% of your retirement amount. If you're able to show that you're disabled, you would draw disability till your full retirement age, and then you would roll in to the retirement like you'd been paying it. You wouldn't get that penalty. So there's a huge benefit for folks if you're, you know, 60, older, pushing 62, there, there is a, an incentive or there is a benefit to not just, uh, I'm not going to do anything. I want to go back to when you first file a claim. What is the average timeline that you're going to hear from the Social Security Administration or the Social Security Insurance that 
you, yes, have been approved or no, you've been, your claim has been denied? Okay. That's a great question. And what you, what you might hear from social security may not match what the reality is. Um, and, and depending on where you live in the state is going to factor in to the, the, to the timing of this. Okay. Uh, because they're handled out of different field offices, uh, right now, um, you know, we we see it's about a six month process from application to getting, uh, your first level answer. If you're successful there, then you, they start paying you. Then we do Missouri was one of about 10 States that did not do this step until one, one of, of 2020 It's called the reconsideration stage, which kind of is just what it sounds like. They reconsider the, your, your application more than nine out of 10 of those are denied. And then you get to the hearing stage. And then right now it's about a, they, they say it's about a six to eight month period to get a hearing date. And, it, and that really depends on what uh, hearing office you're, you're being handled out of. And that's going to be based upon where you live. Is the decision made at the hearing or do you have to wait even longer after the hearing to get a final decision? Well, they may, even if they tell you, you've been approved at the hearing, you have to get it in writing. And then once it comes down in writing, and that's, uh, there are some huge variables there, but uh, if, if you know you've been approved, and some judges will say, I'm going to approve you. And the fact that they don't tell you that in the hearing doesn't mean they're not going to. And most judges don't tell you what they're thinking during a hearing. But basically, once that's paid, or, or what we call getting paid, uh, you're, there's a written decision that comes down from your local hearing office. And there, there's about five in Missouri that, that we deal with for local hearing offices. And then it goes to Kansas City to the regional office, and they, they determine your your past due benefits. That usually, you know, a lot of times you're getting your, your monthly benefit before they figure your past due benefits, but that can usually take a month after the written decision comes down or more, but it's usually about a month to six weeks. So are your past due benefits everything that would have started at five, at that five month mark through to the future? Or does, when you say that they pay out at five months, do they give you back pay then for the first five months of your disability? They do not. They do not pay for the first five months of your disability. So this is where it gets really confusing. I know. Uh, I feel like areas. I need a chart. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's hard. So for instance, uh, let's say uh, your, your onset date and, and an onset date is the date that you believe you became disabled. Okay. So let's say your onset date was, for just make it really simple, 1-1 one, one of 2020, okay? And so if you were successful at a hearing today, let's say, and the, the written decision comes down Monday, so you're within you know, December of 2021, so you wouldn't, basically, you wouldn't get a benefit until June of 2020, and then you'd be looking at whatever that works out to about 18 months, give or take of past due benefits. And that's what your lawyer gets paid on. Your lawyer does not get paid on future benefits or anything like that. Like you might under a worker's compensation uh, scenario. So it's based, the, the lawyer's fee is based upon past due benefits. 
and even that's capped by law uh, right now it's at six thousand dollars so if your benefits are in excess of twenty four thousand dollars in past due benefits you don't pay a fee on the rest of that now you might you know you know for medical records and that type of thing on top of that six thousand dollars so so your fee then is established by by the federal law rather than by a policy of your law firm yes sir okay and, and all lawyer and, and ultimately a judge has to approve that fee that's been the maximum for oh boy at least 10 or 12 years now they haven't changed that six thousand dollars so when we spoke with the lawyer who practiced, he also practices security uh, insurance, but he, we talked to him about veterans benefits. He was explaining that there are very few lawyers that practice in this, in that area, because one, it's a very long process. And two, they're basically taking on the case and assuming all the risk. And the, you know, there's, there's no guaranteed, <laughs> yeah, there's no guaranteed payout. So it sounds like that is the same with Social Security. So I guess what made you decide to practice in this very complicated, drawn out system? Well, you know, there there aren't many lawyers that do it for that those reasons. And and secondly, it's it is there's very little overlap with other areas of law. But the one area that, that kind of drew me to it was our, our workers compensation practice, because, you know, there, there's a lot of cl- a lot of folks, and, and there are things that happen in a workers' compensation claim that, if it not handled correctly on the Social Security side, can cost you a lot of money down the road in Social Security benefits. We see that way too often now, where folks that have very good workers' compensation attorneys that don't really have a background in Social Security can you can have some settlements and those type of things that can really affect your lifetime benefits. So that's kind of what drew me to it was just kind of the, the need and the fact that there weren't many folks that were doing it. We felt very well. So that, that was it. A minute ago, you talked about uh, reconsideration if they refuse your application to begin with. Is there a difference between reconsideration or a direct appeal? Well, the reconsideration is a, a paper review. Uh, there, you don't get to testify at that point. And then if you are unsuccessful and they say that we were right to deny you the first time, which happens almost all the time. It's nothing to be discouraged about. Then you have, you have 60 days to appeal any of these things. So that goes across the board from the first denial to the reconsideration denial, you have 60 days. And then at that point you get an appeal before a judge. That's when you get before a judge. That's where a lawyer is very valuable. You know, and, and the the, pre- the preparation, uh, because every judge, you know, you think of the federal government as all forms and that type of thing, but these judges do things very differently from person to person, not just office to office with how they conduct a hearing. And that's what we like to do is, you know, we know when we find out who the judge is, then we prepare for that particular judge and we go through and question and answer and kind of role play. And, and, and that's how we prepare a case. So you have to do reconsideration before you can appeal. In Missouri, yes, now. We were one of about 10 states that did not do that for a long period of time. I don't know, it's like a 20-year test program. And um, 1-1 of 20, we started that again. Out of our Arkansas, Oklahoma practice, we've always done reconsiderations. Mm -hmm. You might talk to people 
that have been through the process. Well, I didn't have to do that. Well, you know, if they did it a couple of years ago, they didn't. And, and that's something I, I, I would like to point out. Uh, we haven't really touched on it, but one of the most dangerous things that we deal with are people that are getting advice from friends, family, neighbors. Every case is going to be totally different based upon your work history, your age, and your medical impairments. And we, we hear that all the time, you know, my sister-in-law is on disability and there's nothing wrong with her. There's obviously something wrong uh, or, the, or she wouldn't be paid. I'm not going to say the government doesn't make some mistakes, but more often than not, they err on the side of a denial as opposed to paying somebody. And that's one of those things that, again, you, you can't be looking at your claim and compare it to somebody else that you know or the neighbor down the street. It, it's it's in, because everybody's going to be different. That bricklayer is going to have a very different case than, you know, may have the same terrible bad back as a, as a secretary, but they have a very different case. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Everyone has a unique set of circumstances and it sounds like the process takes those into account. We certainly hope, and that's where the Social Security Administration, they look at these claims and then we, you know, the, the medical side of things, there are very few medical conditions that you win just by having the condition. Uh, there, there's a group of about 200 or so called a compassionate allowance list. And, and you don't want anything on that list. Trust me. There are various types of ver very aggressive forms of cancer. Not all cancers. Things like Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, just just some really terrible diseases. And, and those are about the only place where if you have that condition, if we have a written firm diagnosis plus maybe one or two other factors that you win automatically just because I've got XYZ disease, right? Everybody else, you've got to be able to show what it is about my condition, physical, mental, medication side effects that are going to keep me from showing up to work every day, eight hours a day, five days a week without accommodation for, for more than a year. And, and it's that everyday aspect of work that that really is the difference for most folks. Just to get an idea how how big this issue is you're dealing with, what percentage of your clients seeking disability payments wind up having to go through the reconsideration and and uh, and appeals process? Is that more than half of the people you? Oh yeah, you, yeah. It, it's 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 over seventy percent. Yeah, we get a lot of people. We don't we don't we don't do applications for everyone. Uh, we're pretty selective and it's usually people over 50 and we have a fairly uh, decent success rate there. But if, if they don't win it on the application, you're almost guaranteed that the reconsideration, you're going to get the same answer. And then you've got to go before a judge. Does the social security administration provide any guidance or feedback on the application process to the reconsideration? So if I've completed my form, do they, you know, some, I'm thinking right now, the Secretary of State's office here in Missouri, if you're filing like a, a business entity or nonprofit entity with them, they might reject it, but then they send you a letter and tell you what you need to correct on the form <laughs> so that you can do it right the next time. Is there any sort of guardrails or guidance that they offer in that process, or is it truly just kind of you're going in 
you know, with no no knowledge of what they're in t- what they expect and want, and you're just trying to do your best to complete that application. Unfortunately, they don't give you a lot of guidance. When we get into a file, like at a hearing level, a lot of times we can see why they denied somebody, but they don't really tell the claimant that. And you know, usually it's um, well. The, the the short answer is they think that there's some job that you can do. They think your medical evidence isn't strong enough. And that's the reason they denied you. And I get this, I get this call a couple times a week. Well, this is a slam dunk. And I'm like, well, if it were a slam dunk, we wouldn't be talking. You know, you'd have already, you'd have already won. And so that doesn't mean, and I, I should have stressed this earlier. During this time period, you know, the main thing that you can do to help yourself if you're in this process is to go to the doctor and continue to build your medical evidence. You know, as a lawyer, all I can do for you is present the evidence in the best light possible, argue the law, argue the facts, try to avoid making mistakes, but I can't create evidence for you. And unlike, you know, your, you know, the circuit court judge in Cole County there, or the associate circuit court judge who might hear, you know, a boundary dispute, a, a family dispute over a will, a divorce, a personal injury, criminal case, combination of those in the same day. The only thing that these social security judges here, I can't work. So, you know, you want to give them the ability to feel good that they're not going to get somebody in in Kansas city or falls church, Virginia questioning why they paid you. And the way that you do that is you continue to document your problems medically. You know, it sounds to me like the attitude in the system is when somebody comes in and says, I can't work. The system says, oh, yes, you can. You just might not be able to work at what you've been doing all your life. Is that is that the way the table's tilted? That is very accurate. That, that, is a, that is a very succinct way to put it. Can you tell us a little bit about the structure of these hearing judges? So how are they selected and are they their own entity? We found out like with the Veterans Administration, they're their own entity and those judges you know, are separate and apart from the rest of the federal judges. Is the same true with these social security hearing judges? Well, they are, they are not federal judges. Like you would have, uh, they are administrative law judges. They are employees of the social security administration. They are, they have their own union, the selection process, you know, that people apply, there's an application process and, they go to a, if they're selected and hired, they go through a, I think it's about a six to eight week judges school in, in Virginia or Maryland, maybe in Baltimore now, or Falls Church, Virginia, it's one or the other. And then they are assigned to a, to a field office. So, so that's, you know, it's kind of a thing where, you know, you might be from Columbia, Missouri but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get assigned to the Columbia, Missouri field office and absent there being a, uh, or hearing office, I mean, absent there being a open spot for you. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legalese. Today's discussion of disability cases brings to mind how this payment system is so integral to the collection of resources and assistance that have become available to the disabled in recent decades. A review with some personal remembrances seems in order. 
My younger brother, Jim, was born shortly after World War II with a kind of cerebral palsy later classified as Williams syndrome, which is a combination of physical disabilities with some developmental impairment. Grade school was tough for him, but somewhere in the third or fourth grade, one of the public schools in my hometown instituted a special education program that provided highly individualized instruction that included basic reading and math skills and a lot of vocational and life skills instruction. These educational courses laid the foundation for my brother to develop skills to live and work independently by the time he was in his 20s. There were a number of community-based programs that helped along the way with job training, housing, and employment. These programs evolved in the post-World War II era from programs that helped resettle refugees from the war. Some of these began providing assistance to disabled persons after the crush of war refugees was settled. In various communities, they were Goodwill Industries, the Jewish Vocational Service, Metropolitan Employment and Rehabilitation Services, to name but a few. My brother benefited from these programs. His modest employment income was supplemented by Social Security disability payments. He was able to live independently with help from housing programs. Jim was president of a local chapter of the Association for Retarded Citizens, now known as the ARC, an organization for persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and was active in its national beginnings. The organization's current name, the ARC, reflects its history, even though language describing disabilities has changed over time and retarded is no longer in use. The ARC started 60 years ago and now has chapters in over 600 communities. The post-war efforts to help the disabled continued and strengthened a movement to bring persons with disabilities, or different abilities if you prefer, into enjoying the full benefits that our society can offer. There followed federal and state programs for education, employment, and health. Jim died in 1988 at age 42 from a stroke that resulted from the impaired circulation in his arteries that were part of his Williams syndrome. He left behind family and friends who loved, admired, and appreciated him. He had a productive and fulsome life that generations before would have been far, far less. He was able to build a life and contribute to our society. Not long after his death, the disability rights movement reached its highest goal with the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, known as the ADA. The ADA is one of America's most comprehensive pieces of civil rights legislation that prohibits discrimination and guarantees that people with disabilities have the same opportunities as everyone to participate in the mainstream of American life, to enjoy employment opportunities, to purchase goods and services, and to participate in state and local government programs and services. Modeled after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, the Americans with Disabilities Act is an equal opportunity law for people with disabilities. To be protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act, one must have a disability which is defined as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. A person who has a history or record of such an impairment or a person who is perceived by others as having such an impairment. The ADA does not specifically name all of the impairments that are covered. It is important to recognize that there are more than 60 million Americans who have suffered from some sort of disability. And oftentimes it is difficult to figure out what resources are available and suitable for various people.
The state of Missouri has a disability portal online that is maintained by the Governor's Council on Disability. The portal, which is disability.mo.gov, has information on a wide variety of resources for persons with disabilities. It is a starting point for learning what is available in Missouri, and chances are that your life or the life of someone in your family or neighborhood would be enriched by learning of them. So go to www.disability.mo.gov. This is Mike Wolf, Jim Wolf's brother, from whom I learned a lot. Legalese. Now, there's another disability program, and it it's called ERISA. Now, I hate acronyms. But, <laughs> but what what is ERISA, and how does that differ from Social Security benefits? Right. Well, that's a great question. Uh, ERISA, let's see, that acronym stands for Employment Security Income I can't remember what else that stands for, but that is your private insurance company. It's a lot more than that, but that would be if you had a, uh, if your employer, for instance, had a, a an insurance policy that you, maybe you paid, maybe they're providing it for you that is a long-term disability policy or a short-term disability policy, there is a potential, a high likelihood, but not, not guaranteed that it will be covered under an ERISA plan. And that's been around since, I think, 1974. And that is private insurance. That is going to be between you and your insurance company. Whereas Social Security, it is an insurance program, but it is a federal program. And then the SSI is, I mean, that would be what might be termed as welfare. But the disability program under the Social Security Administration, you're paying in on that. If you're paying taxes, that's how you pay your premium. Is there, in terms of qualifying for disability payments under ERISA, is there a much difference in, in the process or the structure? Well, that's going to be, um, you know, you, that's going to be dependent upon what the policy itself says. So, you know, you're, you're just going to be dependent. It's just like, you know, people's health insurance may be different based upon who's, who's the carrier. So that's going to be number one. And then in the event that you are denied, then you basically your next level of appeal is federal court before you know a real federal judge if you did qualify and get a disability you know in that contract if you had some type of payment for your disability does that preclude you from being able to apply for social security disability oh oh no Mo- okay. in fact most ERISA plans require you to file for disability because if you're successful then they get there's an offset they may not have to pay you you know the fifteen hundred dollars a month that maybe you're getting that's that's that much less that they have to pay you number one number two sometimes they go to school off of whatever the social security administration says so you know you get a denial with them well you got a denial so not, not that that's what some of them wait on. If I own a business, should I offer this uh, as a, as as a fringe benefit to my employees? Or well, I, I think it'd be a wonderful benefit, but that's where it really comes down to the, as the business owner, or if you're buying it just for yourself, mm-hmm. to know what you're actually buying. And like, there's there are some companies. Uh, there are some plans uh, I don't really want to name, but there are some that 
would be what I would consider illusory coverage. The, the ERISA law gives a lot of these folks a lot of protection, these companies, a lot of protection with what they're selling. Um, that, that's one of the things that is, is, is very unfair under those regulations. So just with any contract that you would agree to, make sure that you're looking at it and looking Absolutely. at it in your own and in what would be in your best interest. Absolutely. That's one of those things where doctors, lawyers, they have some better long-term disability programs where it is your alike a uh, job. You know, if you can't go back and be a brain surgeon, we're going to pay you. But most of these rank and file long-term disability policies out there that most folks see that might, they might even be, they might work for some huge healthcare provider in St. Louis or Kansas city or Springfield that had, Oh, it's a benefit. Maybe you're even paying a little on it. A lot of times, most of those policies require the, the same, maybe even more. If you're, if you're over 50, you know, the social security administration, you might have some benefits that you don't, you know, because under this, under your private policy, you know, you may, may have to show that there's not a single job I can do. They don't, you don't get that benefit of, that I talked about earlier, where maybe an old dog isn't going to learn a new trick. Touching on that, does the Social Security Administration offer any, like if you've been denied because they say you can learn a new job, you can go do a different job, are there any job retraining benefits that they refer you to or recommend, can recommend you for so that at least... If they're saying you need to go learn a new type of job, we think you can do some type of work, just not what you were doing before. You actually, you know, it's the onus is on you to go figure out how to pay for that. No, they don't really. Um, usually what they, how they determine that you're not disabled is they assume, and it is a big assumption, whatever jobs, for instance, like for instance, at a hearing, we in Missouri, we almost always have a vocational expert in the hearing, at the hearing, or for at least part of the hearing. And that person is there to talk about what type of work you have done in the past and what, if anything, you could do based upon a series of questions that the judge gets to ask and then your attorney gets to ask, or if you're unrepresented, you get to ask, I guess. It's kind of a goofy system, but they assume that if they list those jobs, and they, and they have somebody doing this in the application stage as well, that you're pre-qualified for those jobs that they list. So there's no real training program. Now, you know, good luck finding some of these jobs, but they say they exist. Well, it, it sounds to me like people need to uh, look into your ebooks, if nothing else, when they get ready to file something like this. Is there, is there an email, is there a, 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 an address on the internet that they can go to to look at your ebooks? Sure. Um, you can go to KrebsLawOffice.com, K-R-E as in Edward, B as in boy, S, Law Office, and sign up, and, and we'd be happy to send it to you. Or you can call our office, uh, 417-883-5886, or we've got an 800 number, 345-0535, and, and we'll be happy to put you on there. Jason, when folks call your office, what is the kind of most important piece of advice that you give someone who says that they've become disabled in our, in our, you know, seeking that first touch point with you. Right. The number one thing is 
what kind of documentation do you have right now? That That's the number one thing. Because unfortunately, the fact that our healthcare system is tethered to our employment very often or our spouse's employment, you may need an MRI. You may need a, you know, if, I mean, if you have a, a solid MRI, you know, that, that may be, that may trump a thousand pages of, of you know, mental health records, right? Because that's a hard piece of evidence that, you know, anybody can put up on a screen and say, this back is terrible. This guy has a terrible back. So that's number one is you've got to really, I mean, if you don't have some sort of documentation and more is better, that there's something major going on, that's something that is the, the, the best thing you can do to improve your chances is try to get something documented. Now, the last thing you want to do is walk in to a doctor's office and say, I'm trying to get on social security disability. Can you take a look at me? Because most doctors aren't going to respond to that very well. So if you're truly having problems, that's something you need to figure out a way, whether it's, you know, sliding scale clinics, free clinics, apply for Medicaid, Missouri Health Net, to try to get that documentation started. And, and something we didn't uh, talk about, I know we're kind of running out of time, but it is very important. If you quit work today, and you had a perfect work history, you do not have forever to file a claim, okay? Typically, if you had a, a, an outstanding perfect work history, you're going to run out of credits. Your, your, your work credits are a moving, rolling apparatus, I guess, for lack of a better term. So if you quit work today, that stops. And you generally only have about five years to prove you were disabled. But, you know, after you quit work, because then you're going to run out of credits. And this is something that we see. It's heartbreaking how much we see this, because what happens is you see somebody that had some health issues seven or eight years ago. Spouse had a good job. Ill person, sick spouse decides, well, I'm just going to quit work. And seven or eight years later, they're calling us because healthy spouse is either sick now or fled the, you know, lost the job, fled town, whatever. And, you know, they're out of credits and it's really hard. I mean, you can show you were disabled before you run out of credits, even though it may be post that that's called your date last insured. You can still prove you were disabled, but it becomes much more difficult. Any new records that you might acquire, you might go get that good MRI. It's outside of the time and the judge you know, doesn't have to look at it, probably won't look at it. So that's something that a lot of folks need to, uh, to be aware of is, you know, if, if you haven't worked for some period of time, you need to probably look at this process sooner than later. So early contact and early filing is not taking advantage of the system. It's protecting yourself. Oh, no, absolutely not. And, and, the, and the reality is, I mean, again, this, you've paid for this. I mean, this isn't, uh, this isn't a, a situation where, you know, this is, something for nothing when you've been paying those FICA taxes all those years that this is what you're paying for. It's your safety net, essentially. It is. It's exactly, it's a, it is a safety net. It's a government run safety net. There's a lot of problems with it, but you know, it's, it's better than the alternative, which, you know, before this came around, it was, you know, people selling pencils on a street corner. 
Well, we appreciate the information today, Jason. This is uh, the, the idea that people need to be prompt in what they, in, in the actions that they take when they become disabled is, uh, is a real key to this whole thing. And then understanding what it takes to work your way through the system is, uh, is, 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 I think, very helpful to people who understand all they have to do is go in and apply and they get a check. It's not, that, it's not how it works. No, it's, it's a long process and they need to be prepared for it. Well, we want to thank you for being with us on this edition of, of Is It Legal 2, a special production of Missouri Bar. We've explored numerous facets today of disability law. Thanks to Springfield lawyer Jason Krebs for walking us through that. Before we go, this program series is focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. This episode as several of our episodes have, deals with the issue of benefits. The Constitution comes into play when government terminates benefits. Both the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments provide that when government deprives individuals of property, it must be done in accordance with due process of law. In other words, the government must act in a manner that is fair to the individual. The government does not get to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, however it wants. Courts have ruled that individuals have a property interest in the benefits provided by the government. If government seeks to terminate those benefits, then the government must do so consistent with due process. However, saying government must provide due process is not the end of the issue but in many ways, only the beginning. If we say that the government must comply with due process, what exactly does that mean? How much process is due? The Supreme Court of the United States wrestled with this issue in the 1970s as government benefits became more and more prevalent in our society. One of the first major decisions on the constitutional limitations on the termination of benefits was the 1970 case of Goldberg versus Kelly. In Goldberg, the welfare benefits of several New York City residents were terminated without providing a hearing in which the individuals could present their case for maintaining the benefits. The individuals brought suit claiming that they were deprived of their property without due process of law. Ultimately, the United States Supreme Court agreed. The court, in a decision written by Justice William Brennan, not only decided that the individual should be given a pre-termination hearing, it specified a number of protections the government must provide. These protections included timely and adequate notice detailing the reasons for the proposed termination of benefits, an opportunity to present evidence and confront adverse witnesses at the hearing, assistance of counsel, an impartial decision-maker, a decision based only on the evidence presented, and an explanation of the reasoning behind the decision. The court's decision in Goldberg v. Kelly produced supporters and detractors. Those who approved of the decision look to both the protection provided to the individual and the clarity of a list of protections provided by due process. 
Those who disapproved of the decision cited the cost of providing the safeguards in each case, as well as arguing that not every case demanded the full list of protections. The court was insisting upon a one-size-fits-all approach to a broad array of different and diverse cases. The Supreme Court would revisit the issue only six years later, and its approach would be much different. Even though only a few years had passed, the court now included four new members. One of those new members, Justice Lewis Powell, would write the majority opinion, and his approach was much different from that of Justice Brennan in Goldberg. In the 1976 case of Matthews v. Eldridge, the Supreme Court ruled that the government did not have to provide a hearing before it terminated Social Security disability benefits. Justice Powell's opinion rejected the laundry list approach of Goldberg, which demanded that a specific number of protections be given to the individual. Instead, as Powell contended, due process is a flexible concept that varies with the facts of each case. Whether a pre-termination hearing was required and how many protections would be given to the individual depended upon the circumstances and a balancing of the interests. The majority first looked to the nature of the individual interest in the case. While the welfare recipients in Goldberg had a desperate need for the uninterrupted receipt of benefits, that was not the case with Social Security benefits. Powell wrote, The disabled worker's need is likely to be less than that of a welfare recipient. In addition to the possibility of access to private resources, other forms of government assistance will become available where the termination of disability benefits places a worker or his family below the subsistence level. The majority then looked to the potential for erroneous deprivation of benefits and the probable value of additional protections. In other words, did the existing procedure present a substantial risk of individuals having their benefits unjustifiably denied? Powell wrote that the risk here was not great. In short, a medical assessment of the worker's physical or mental condition is required. This is a more sharply focused and easily documented decision than the typical determination of welfare entitlement. For Powell and the majority, there was not a great risk of taking the benefits from a deserving individual. Similarly, Adding other safeguards would not make the process much more effective. Powell wrote, The decision whether to discontinue disability benefits will turn, in most cases, upon routine, standard, and unbiased medical reports. For the majority, there was no need for extended argumentation and debate. The final aspect of the test articulated by Powell was the public interest. And how did Powell define the public interest? He wrote, This includes the administrative burden and other societal costs that would be associated with requiring, as a matter of constitutional right, an evidentiary hearing upon demand in all cases prior to the termination of disability benefits. 
the most visible burden would be the incremental cost resulting from the increased number of hearings and the expense of providing benefits to ineligible recipients pending decision. For Powell and the majority, the public interest was in saving money and keeping the undeserving from enjoying benefits to which they were not entitled. When the court put these criteria together, they came up with an individual interest they did not view as overly compelling, an existing process that was adequate to do the job, and a public interest in not squandering money. Unsurprisingly, the court ruled that the Due Process Clause did not require a pre-termination hearing with the Goldberg-style protections for the individual before it terminated Social Security disability benefits. Justice Brennan wrote a dissenting opinion in which he asserted that while the theoretical criteria cited by the majority looked good on paper, the reality was much more brutal and unforgiving. Brennan wrote, indeed, in the present case, it is indicated that because disability benefits were terminated, there was a foreclosure upon the Eldridge home and the family's furniture was repossessed, forcing Eldridge, his wife, and their children to sleep in one bed. For Brennan, this was the result of a process that disregarded the needs of the individual and prioritized easing administrative burden. Matthews versus Eldridge is cited with approval by many judges and commentators who appreciate its flexibility, practicality, focus on cost, and balancing of competing interests. Critics argue that it was a test fraught with ambiguity that could be used to support whatever result a judge wanted to reach. Even Justice William Rehnquist, who joined the majority in Matthews, once noted the balancing test of Matthews is simply an ad hoc weighing which depends to a great extent upon how the court subjectively views the underlying interests at stake. Should the termination of disability benefits require a pre-termination hearing? Should the protections required by due process of law be a fixed list of requirements or vary from case to case? For the past 50 years, the Supreme Court has been consistent in its approach. Whether it remains consistent in the upcoming years remains to be seen. And there is much more in this field that we haven't had time to touch on. If you want to learn more about disability law, you can visit the Missouri Bar's website for the public, missourilawyershelp.org. That's missourilawyershelp.org. You can also visit Jason's website, which he mentioned, krebslawoffice.com. Both places you can find an array of information. And on the Missouri Bar's website, you can find information on other legal topics to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us.
Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal To podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.